Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm Ryan Grimm. And the House spent this week debating military and foreign policy through amendments to what's known as the National Defense Authorization Act. That's an annual bill that sets policy for the Pentagon. And the process for passing it produces one of the few moments that rank and file lawmakers can actually influence the legislative process in Congress, or at least theoretically they can. The bill passed out of the Armed Services Committee nearly unanimously, saving the real fight for the Rules Committee and the House floor. The way it works is that a lawmaker writes an amendment that is related to the military somehow, and then the Rules Committee votes on whether it's in order. If it's in order, it goes to the House floor, where everybody votes on it. But there's no pretense that there are really any rules in the Rules Committee, other than that the amendment has to have some connection to the Pentagon. What else makes an amendment in order? If the Rules Committee says it's in order, then it's in order. If they say it's not, then it's not. Now, some 1,500 amendments were submitted, so there were some very late nights this week. In fact, One of our guests called me after midnight earlier this week to let me know about developments underway in that rules committee. That guest is the sleep-deprived Eric Sperling, executive director of Just Foreign Policy, who's been lobbying all week on the NDAA. Eric, thanks for waking up from your nap to join us. Yeah, great to be here. It's been been quite a week. It has been, and not quite over yet. Uh, We'll have an update uh, on that fairly shortly, I suspect. But we're also joined this week by my editor, Noska Renner. He's going to be handling most of the questioning today. Uh, Noska, how you doing? Doing fine. Yeah, so I just wanted to start out by saying, you know, at the beginning of the week in, in our weekly Intercept Politics meeting, we were talking about this week as a real week of possibility for forcing a conversation about U.S. involvement abroad. And that Freedom Caucus Republicans like Matt Gates would would be teaming up with um, progressives to consider a, a whole bunch of amendments that would really change the conversation in Washington around foreign policy. So now we're at the end of that week and things look very different than they did at the beginning. So I wanted to start just by going through and talking about what what played out in the Rules Committee um, and on the House floor. And then, you know, I want to reflect a little bit on on whether our prediction that the conversation in Washington would really be forced by this um, actually happened. So Ryan, this week, you and another um, Intercept Politics reporter, Daniel Bogoslaw, reported on an amendment that would block the transfer of cluster munitions to Ukraine, as well as everywhere else in the world. Um, It was introduced by Democratic uh, representatives Sarah Jacobs and Ilhan Omar, and it looked like it was gaining some bipartisan support, including from um, Representative Gates. So here's a clip of Matt Gates talking about supporting the bill on his podcast. Democrat Congresswoman Sarah Jacobs, who we've criti- criticized a great deal on this show for some of her views. She's probably criticized me a great deal for some of mine. But she has introduced an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act that reads, notwithstanding any other provision of law, no military assistance shall be furnished 
for cluster munis munitions. No defense export license for cluster munitions may be issued, and no cluster munitions or cluster munitions technology shall be sold or transferred. And what I'm here to tell you is that I'm going to be the Republican co-sponsor of the Jacobs Amendment before the House Rules Committee. We have an opportunity with bipartisanship to stand against the warmongering Bidens. And these cluster bombs will not end the war in Ukraine. Let's look at the countries where cluster bombs have been used. Laos, Lebanon, Afghanistan, Yemen, Syria. Cluster bombs are features of the world's bloodiest and most inhumane wars. And some of the longest, it's hardly the cornerstone of a path to peace. So Ryan, can you give us a little background into the Omar and Jacobs Amendment and you know why the transfer of cluster munitions is a progressive priority? Well, yeah, this, this sprang from the Biden administration's announcement that they were going to start shipping uh, munitions, which uh, they seem to be suggesting on background was happening because they were running out of regular munitions, which, you know, doesn't really uh, make, make it uh, make those any less harmful to civilians in, in the future. Uh, the problem with with cluster munitions, well, A, you know, more than 100 countries have banned them. Uh, now, among the those who have not banned them is China, Russia, Turkey, which appears to be shipping them to Ukraine uh, and the United States. And so while it is kind of against international law for most countries, it's not against international law uh, for for us to do it, the problem with these cluster munitions is that you know they when when they blow up and they spread out, uh, they need a pretty hard surface to explode, and so they get tested out in this very hard southwest desert. And the ones that we're sending over there have something like a six percent dud rate, which means that if you drop you know several hundred thousand of them, or you drop several you know several million clusters, you're going to wind up with several hundred thousand unexploded cluster munitions sitting around in the ground, you know, for decades waiting for somebody to come along and f to have their legs blown off by them. And those are under conditions with a pretty tough ground. If you're dropping them in mud, you know, you're, you might be lucky to get a 6% uh, dud rate. You might actually be looking at a much, much higher rate, uh, which means that you'd have many more people. Now, the Biden administration made a kind of macabre argument, which is that, well, uh, there's already a lot of cluster munitions and landmines flying all over Ukraine. Uh, you know, so what's a few more million of them? Once that's your argument, you've kind of taken a wrong turn somewhere. Um, Eric, am I missing anything there? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Um, and I think, you know, one of the fundamental issues in Washington is uh, really relates to a whole range of U.S. Uh, interventions and policies abroad is that there isn't an understanding that it actually matters. Uh, our primary duty as Americans is to not do harm ourselves. You know, of course, we all really we want to help also as many, you know, good, well-intentioned, progressive people and compassionate people that we want to stop harm being done by others. Um, but in this case, you know, I think we're going to see uh, unfortunately, we're going to hear for, for probably a very long time uh, reports of, of children and innocent civilians being hurt. And, um, you know, those who supported this action will, will, will have that on their conscience. And I think um, and will be you know able to be direct, directly, you know, that's that's directly attributable to this decision. So I think that's what's often missing is saying, well, if Russia does it, uh, then uh, it's OK if we do it, uh, except for that we don't support Russia doing it. We've actually criticized Russia for doing it. Um, so it's it's one thing that they just kind of skip over in, in, in the debates. All right. And so the way that these things work in the Rules Committee, Noska, to answer your other question is that you typically, if you're going to get to the House floor, you're going to want 
bipartisan support. You know, if 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 you're if you're a Republican and you have a Republican amendment and you're in the majority, you're you're probably okay. But it helps to have Democratic support. Uh, but if you are trying to get a cluster munitions you know, ban onto the onto a, the floor for a vote, you're going to need Republican support because there's nine Republicans on the rules committee and just four Democrats. Three of those Republicans are you know Tea Party folks who were added because of that that McCarthy revolt, and so. Getting Gates was was a big step, uh, you know, forward to say that okay, maybe you're going to get some Freedom Caucus support because it's just enough that if you add up uh, the four Democrats and three Tea Party folks, you can win seven six and and get onto the House floor. And so uh, advocates were encouraged that that it was going to make it at that point. And then I think we'll talk about some of the shenanigans that went on after that. Uh, I think this is actually a really good opportunity to play an interview that our my colleague. Um, a brief interview my colleague Daniel Bogoslaw did uh, with Gates outside of the Rules Committee that gets into some of his thinking around this issue. Do we have that handy? I'm sorry. He was next. Uh, last time we spoke, you said you were going Mr. Worldwide. You're looking to reduce uh, military transfers all over the world. There's amendments looking at reducing military transfers to Ecuador, Guatemala, Central American countries, in addition to Yemen, which you said you were interested in. Do you think that there's uh, any consensus in the Freedom Caucus around some of these other issues outside? So I, I think about our hemisphere considerably different than I think about Syria and Yemen. I think that we do have equities at play in Latin America. I support a reinvigorated Monroe Doctrine. And so I'm going to, I wouldn't lump. Guatemala and El Salvador in with Yemen and Syria. So kind of like a half isolationism. What do you what do you make of uh, what does that tell us, Eric, about this kind of new right Republican foreign policy? Yeah, well, it is uh, it is a more traditional um, America first approach. I think it's focused on uh, protecting the border, protecting, you know, what they see as core American interests. And, you know, just like with so many other politicians, but particularly with these folks, uh, there's limited uh, areas of overlap. Uh, and, and you look for those where you can um, to the extent they're helpful. And, um, you know, and oftentimes uh, it, can, it can be unhelpful as well, depending on, on which member or, or uh, as happened with the cluster bombs amendment, that which we'll probably discuss more shortly. Yeah. And to Noska's question, what do you make of this new rights kind of new approach to foreign policy? Like where where is it coming from? Where? Why do we have people like Gates, uh, people like Massey, Chip Roy, uh, some of these others on the Rules Committee who are willing to line up sometimes with Democrats on these issues? When, when did you see that really developing? So, yeah, there's actually a long history of this sort of this style of, of America first kind of constitutional focus on U.S. foreign policy, you know, defense of war powers and, you know, a, a focus on the immediate region rather than uh, interventions far, far from from the homeland. You know, my very first internship on the Hill back in 2013 happened to be when there was a major debate going on about U.S. intervention in Syria. Uh, President Obama had was pressured to seek authorization uh, from Congress for that intervention, and, and it ended up being that Republicans led that push against him. So sometimes it can be politically expedient to push back on the president. In other cases, it's uh, you know of some true belief of of kind of what some genuine belief about what uh, uh, U.S national security interests really are and really should be. Uh, it's very hard to get in the head of these folks. Uh, you, you do, and it's, pro- you know, it's probably unpleasant, I think, in many cases to do that. But, um, you know, I think what really matters is, uh, and from our perspective, 
is not necessarily what's in their head, but like how it can be used, how progressives and people with good intentions can work with that to achieve better results that reduce harm for people who are victims or would be victims of U.S. foreign policy abroad. Um, but you do see a lot of speculation, you know, as we'll discuss, I'm sure, on the cluster bombs issue. You hear many members saying, you know, this right wing uh, anti-war person is not doing it for the right reason. Um, well, yeah, that may be true. But if somehow their support can lead to a reduction in harm abroad, I think many people abroad would would be would prefer that rather than taking a principled stand against their bad faith uh, reasons for reducing that harm. And so I think that's one of another kind of core uh, issue that we have in Washington is a focus on the personalities rather than a focus on the impact on the victims that, you know, being strategic and working with folks can have. So to go back to the uh, Jacobs-Omar amendment, Eric, can you give us a little background into into how that even materialized? Yeah. So over the last, I'd say, at least 10 years that I've been working both as a staffer in Congress for progressive members and, and as an advocate uh, work focused on, on congressional work, there's always very uh, serious debates about whether or not it's strategic to call a vote. Uh, you know, I think uh, some folks, there's, gen- there's been a general tendency, I'd say the more mainstream tendency has been, well, don't call a vote unless you are sure you're going to win. It's embarrassing to lose a vote. A lot of people in the in the in Congress and uh, people who are engaged in these policies would prefer it to be quietly handled by the White House. And bringing attention to it by having a vote on the floor of Congress can can really drive media, can drive attention, and also can put members on the record in a way that forces them to think about the issue. Um, as a staffer, a former staffer, I could say, you know, m- many of these foreign policy issues, the members and even their staff have maybe thought about them once in their life or never in their life. So when you force that vote, you really get that that process where the legislative director, the foreign policy staffer has to talk with the boss and they have to decide, hey, where do you want to be on this issue? I mean, that's what happened. That same debate happened here early on when the amendment process was announced. Um, and Biden administration announced that they were sending the cluster bombs and the same debate happened. And essentially, you had one side saying, well, we can't take this vote. I and mean, if we lose the vote, it's going to be a signal of support to the Biden administration. Um, and the other side saying, if we just ask people to put out statements, you only get a handful of people criticizing it. But if we take a vote, we'll get at least 100 and maybe 200 or more voting against it. So that same debate played out. And I think as the intensity of the media debate happened over the cluster bombs. And as the media reaction was very strong, um, it, it really empowered uh, advocates and members of Congress who were passionate about this to say, you know, I think this is really worth it to, to call the question. And Jacobs and, and Omar stepped up pretty late in, in the process. And I think it also, and we're going to get into this more, it matters, you know, who's behind these things. I think Ilhan Omar is so consistent on some of these issues that it helped to have somebody who's considered a bit more of a rank and file lawmaker, Sarah Jacobs, say, oh, maybe this has a little bit more potential to push you know, all the way across uh, the Democratic caucus. Now, she's quietly become a, a pretty strong voice on, on foreign policy, uh, but she's not the kind of polarizing figure that somebody like Ilhan Omar or on the other side, Matt, Matt Gates is. So I think once you saw Jacobs get involved, uh, it gave people permission in some ways to get behind it shortly after they put out their amendment. I think you had Jayapal organize a letter. Eric was probably involved in helping with that. Uh, that I think 19 Democrats signed on to telling the White House, you know, we're very concerned about this. And each one of those little steps kind of builds confidence in, in people to then say, well, maybe we have a shot of getting to triple digits here. 
No, that's absolutely right. Uh, Sarah Jacobs is a member who is very much, um, she's progressive in many ways, but is also very much, um, you know, she's a, a, a top dem on, on the Africa subcommittee of House Foreign Affairs and a very credible member. And so it was fantastic that she wanted to lead. And I think that definitely contributed to the sense that, you know, the momentum. And then, you know, but what, what really you know, transformed it was their willingness to work with someone who, you know, is very unpleasant for many people in a very, you know, people can very reasonably feel that way, uh, Matt Gates. But for, for Sarah Jacobs to put put those those other issues aside and, and accept him as a co-sponsor, accept Anna Paulina Luna as a co-sponsor. I mean, these are people, if you listen to most of their yeah, most of their discourse, most of their policy issues are just, and even their style is, is really, can be really painful for a lot of people. But it's great to see them putting that aside. And then that, I think, gave a lot of, uh, put a lot of pressure on on the Rules Committee and others to to make something in order. And that kind of led to some of the processes that we can continue to talk about what ended up happening. So, yeah, so this amendment seemed, you know, it's truly bipartisan, seemed poised to sort of fly through the Rules Committee, which, as Ryan was mentioning earlier, um, relies on on bipartisanship. Then what, what happened next? Ryan, do you want to walk us through? So once it gets to the Rules Committee, uh, you, are, you have to kind of run a gauntlet of people behind the scenes, and that's, you know, members of leadership and also heads of the committee. And so uh, Mike Rogers and Adam Smith, you know, testified before the Rules Committee. These are the top Republican and Democrat on the House Armed Services Committee. And so what you do there is oftentimes you'll say, hey, what do you guys think of this? And if both of them are okay with it, uh, you're often going to have an amendment get waved through. And so here's, we actually have a clip here uh, from a Rules Committee hearing. This is Jim McGovern, who's a top Democrat on, on the committee, asking Mike Rogers and Adam Smith what they think of this cluster munitions amendment from Jacobs and Omar. I think, can we cue that up? Either of you have an opinion of whether or not um, the House should be able to debate uh, the issue of cluster munitions or not, uh, but if you have an opinion, I'd love to hear it. It's fine with me. Fine, fine with me too. I mean, I think- Good, then I hope, then I hope yeah. it's made in order uh, and we'll be able to have that debate um, and that vote. So both of them are fine with it. And you're like, oh, wow, okay. Guess we might be heading to the floor. And then you got some extraordinary maneuvering behind the scenes uh, that resulted in quite a wild outcome, which actually goes back to the point I was making earlier that it matters who the authors of these uh, amendments are. Eric, can you talk about how this unfolded, what you know about it? You know, very late at night, uh, after there was an initial rules package of non-controversial amendments, and then everyone was waiting to hear uh, about all of the major hot button issues and 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 the rules committee announced it would be coming back in to session uh, and and to do their consideration of these amendments um, at midnight and they ended up coming in at one and what was happening at that just before they came in was that they were negotiating a new amendment text because they said that they had an issue with it being too broad and we've seen some of that conversation in in their public hearings where they said it's it's too broad, it has to be uh, only focused on Ukraine. And that, that criticism, that complaint doesn't really make any sense. Uh, there's no real reason for doing that. Right. Where are we sending cluster munitions? Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, I think that cuts both ways in a sense. I mean, on one hand, 
you know, we can ban them generally because they're not sending them anywhere else but Ukraine. On the other hand, if you're only sending it to one place and you remove that one place as an option, you're down to zero. So yeah, this isn't an important distinction. But what it did give them the opportunity to do is two things. Uh, but most importantly, in this instance, they were able to draft a new amendment, which then they were able to decide who to place it with. And of course, uh, they placed it with the member that unfortunately, you know, makes Gates at this point look relatively bipartisan and collaborative, not only because Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, has been just in the recent week insulting progressive squad members uh, using Ukraine. Uh, she, she had a tweet exchange with Cori Bush attacking her, even though Cori Bush is one of our most progressive members on foreign policy and certainly is not a diehard militarist when it comes to Ukraine at all. Uh, but Marjorie Taylor Greene attacked her viciously and mixed the racial uh, kind of with a kind of a racial uh, focus. And so not, but it's not just that she alienates progressives even more than Matt Gates. It's that she also just got kicked out of the House Freedom Caucus for uh, insulting, uh, you know, vulgar insults against Lauren Boebert. So this is the single most toxic member who um, they could possibly have chosen to have this amendment. And of course, I think it's pretty transparent why they did that. It's because the Jacobs Amendment with Gates co-sponsoring it and many other uh, reasonable moderate Democrats co-sponsoring it was on track to do very, very well. And we think that it was very likely that it would pass. Yeah, so essentially what happened, we got word that they were going to be writing a new amendment, giving it to Marjorie Taylor Greene, and that would be the amendment that would go on the floor, would not be a bipartisan amendment, and that's the vote that they were going to give us. You know, sometimes I, I feel like it's pointless to ask why about things that happen in Congress, but... I still don't totally get, you know, whose interests were at stake here. Like, who really wanted to sabotage this? Well, I would say pretty much anyone who is, you know, a strong supporter of the Ukraine military support and wanting it to be un unimpacted, because this was a very critical vote for a number of reasons. You know, it's the first opportunity for members to you know, essentially, definitely since uh, what we call kind of the diplomacy gate, uh, progressive caucus letter uh, scandal, where a very mild letter was, you know, which in hindsight, it looks very, very mild. And, and the whole situation is very strange. And history will see it that way, of course. But, you know, since then, there's been no opportunity really for members to kind of challenge the official policy and and, and, and push back on that. And so this would have been an opportunity where you have Ukrainian advocates, you have hawks accusing members of you know, well, you're being pro-Putin if you won't send these these cluster bombs. And members would be able to break free from that through this vote. So it's very consequential because it would be an opportunity for, you know, for a caucus to form of members who say, hey, we support Ukraine, but we're not going to do everything Ukraine says just because, you know, you're saying that we're pro-Putin if we don't. And so that it's a really significant thing. And, and there's a lot of precedent for this. For example, in the Yemen war, um, advocacy uh, struggle, which has been over eight years now. One of the major turning points was a 2016 vote on cluster bombs. You know, I was actually um, worked on that vote with my a former boss, uh, John Conyers. And we said, you know, no transferring cluster bombs to Saudi Arabia over their use in Yemen. Uh, so kind of a, a triple impact there of three terrible uh, situations and, and things. And we almost passed it out of nowhere. We had 40 Republicans join and almost every Democrat and notably, one of the Democrats that, that didn't vote for it was uh, HVAC House Foreign Affairs Chair Elliot Engel. Uh, and Jamal Bowman later cited his support for cluster bombs in that primary as one of the main foreign policy critiques. So this is very consequential because it puts members in a very tough place. It's a difficult vote if you have a sensible member that's leading it and, and framing it in a good way. 
Um, and that's what they were afraid of is, uh, you know, that at a very reasonable kind of establishment friendly uh, leadership on this amendment. And we were going to get a very, very good result. And with Gates and, and Anna Paulina Luna already supporting it, we were also going to do quite well on the right. And it, we, I think we were looking at a very strong win on that vote. And so they were desperate to block that. Absolutely. And I think it lays bare to answer directly the question, the double game that Kevin McCarthy has been playing. And, you know, he's been telling the right that he is that he's just as skeptical of kind of U.S. support for the war effort as as they are. You remember he said something like there's going to be strings attached if uh, if Republicans take over. And then he was pressed by the the right the right wing of the Republican Party to make sure that during the lame duck, Congress was not able to send tens or hundreds of billions of dollars more uh, so that they wouldn't need Republican support because they would already have banked a lot of that money. And he didn't do that because the understanding in Washington has always been that he's basically with McConnell on this on this question. He is aligned with kind of the Biden administration, but he wants to sort of tell the Freedom Caucus that he's with them on this. This was an opportunity where he could have pushed back against sending cluster munitions by even, you know, he didn't even have to express support for it. He just, if he just acted neutrally and didn't, you know, allow it to be stripped from Jacobs and moved over to Marjorie Taylor Greene, you get a much better outcome. The fact that that happened, I think, shows where McCarthy is on this and answers your question about kind of who is behind this and why they would be behind it. Um, but Eric, uh, real quick, just to clear up for people who weren't paying attention earlier, you just described briefly that that controversial letter that you that you talked about. Yeah, the Progressive Caucus letter from last year said we support uh, providing arms to Ukraine. We support President Biden is uh, is measured approach of not uh, escalating or, or seeking to to be escalatory and avoiding that, but at the same time urged a slightly higher, uh, greater prioritization of of diplomatic. Uh, talks and, and and exploring ways to end the war. And that letter that letter was released, and then quickly, uh, Pramila Jayapal backtracked on it. Yeah, and, and then you know, shortly, then just weeks later, you know, you saw members like you know Rokana, and you had AOC, and and many other members that actually stood by the letter. And you know, the letter was essentially vindicated in short order as as uh, Defense Department officials and, and, and Biden administration officials and, and senior mainstream commentators all essentially expressed the, the same sentiment of the letter. And um, in fact, you know, the Biden administration had said that that letter was, um, they didn't see anything controversial with it. They said it actually squared with their current approach. So it was always a very interesting dynamic. So, you know, so this vote is, is the first opportunity essentially since then for members to have a chance to say, similar concept, which is we do support Ukraine, but we don't, uh, that doesn't mean we're going to allow any type of escalation or any type of action uh, to, to achieve that end. And and with, with these very mainstream um, House Foreign Affairs uh, members leading, it, it was going to do very well. And so you can see why those who are uh, were very are very staunchly behind the war and, and support even escalatory actions in Ukraine would be very worried about an outcome that would have uh, that could actually pass the House. If, it, if there's an Axios piece that discussed senators that were already preparing what would happen if it passed the House. So you could see there was a lot of contingencies in place. There was a lot of concern about the pressure that could build if this passed the House. And so that's what certainly led uh, the more hawkish members of, of at least House Republican leadership, but possibly others as well, to act to uh, make the vote uh, the most difficult that this vote could possibly be, which is to give it to the single most, uh, let's say, challenging member 
of Congress, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. And and so then uh, that that changed the dynamic of the fight. And, and, uh, and we, we can talk about how that played out as well. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So yesterday, on Thursday, um, the Marjorie Taylor Greene measure went to the floor. There were a lot of floor speeches about whether or not we're in a proxy war with Russia. And what ended up happening? It's a very similar dynamic to to some recent votes where you do have these members like Matt Gates, who, you know, people on the left have no ability to even barely communicate with this person, much less guide them or reason with them on, on what the strategy should be. And and you're just forced to essentially respond and make the best of a very stressful situation. I mean, in this case, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, again, I, I won't can't get in her head or what her intentions are, but the intentions of the people that placed the amendment with her was clearly to use it to essentially support the war effort. But she doesn't even realize that that is their intent. And so she's allowing herself, uh, you know, or ends up being used for essentially pro-war purposes, which is a huge challenge for us. But I think it was a really great opportunity for progressive groups. You had progressive uh, organizations, anti-war organizations, uh, on, on the left and also on the right. And then you have members of Congress who have been doing this left-right work for years. Um, going back, like I said, in, in my career to, to the 2013 Syria fight, you had similar activity in Libya and, and, and then, of course, the Yemen work and then a bunch of Syria work more recently as well, uh, going back uh, several years with Jamal Bowman leading multiple amendments and, and Matt Gates then leading a war powers resolution on Syria this year. So members are starting to see that what really matters here is the policy, not the personality. That doesn't mean it, it, it doesn't, you know, members who are on the fence are certainly swayed by that. But we do have an increasingly strong group of members who are able to look past these really difficult personalities um, and, and look at what's on the substance. And so essentially, uh, you know, I think with, between ad advocacy groups um, that are saying, let's vote on this policy here, you don't want to be and I think the key message for this one is just the historical lasting impact of these weapons. You know, members really you know, shouldn't want to be on the record as having voted for this, but much like Elliot Engel was uh, in 2016, sending cluster bombs to Saudi Arabia for use in Yemen, because this is something that's going to continue to cause harm. And it's something that could be, you know, reflect on them in, in a primary or, or, or just even in their conscience. And so I think by just essentially organizing, you know, reflecting, uh, you know, 
understanding people's frustrations about these really difficult uh, members and just how unbelievably unfortunate it is that they are are leading, but keeping it focused on the substance and by doing that, we were able to get, uh, again, this, this very core group of the most progressive members, the, the entire squad, uh, you're able, we were able to keep all of those members and bring a ton of other members along as well. And then, you know, get the Republicans uh, that come along as well, uh, which in this case, given the Marjorie Taylor Greene's leadership is the bigger, the bigger number. So I think ultimately 147 representatives voted in favor of, of Green's measure. Was that more than you were expecting based on her leadership of it? And did you ultimately see it as a success? Yeah, well, it's it's a success in the sense that um, it, it limited the harm that could have come from from this. Like, for example, if, if groups had said, well, Marjorie Taylor Greene is supporting this, we're not going to vote for something that she's doing or we're going to protest it, that would kind of reintroduce a more partisan character to the foreign policy, which is the exact opposite of what we need to really end these wars and these interventions. And so I think it's it's really important. I wouldn't say it's a success, of course, because it was a very shrewd move by leadership to have her do it and to be able to manage even her psychology so that you can have her lead it and she doesn't even realize she's leading it to undermine it. Um, it's just a remarkable move that they did. So in a sense, it was uh, successful that, you know, there wasn't really devastating harm that we have a group of, of all of at least many of our favorite progressive members and a ton of other even more moderate members that said, I'm going to vote on on the principle. And so and the good news is, you know, there's no member more toxic than her. So little by little, as we go through this process, we're learning about the tricks that leadership that hawks in, in, in leadership have. And that's sort of the same story of the Yemen war fight over eight years is little by little at each stage of the process, you're learning the different tricks that they have. And here, I think both advocacy groups and members of Congress saw this trick and it's going to be less potent next time. And I think we'll be able to continue to convince members to vote on the impact of the policy and what's on the paper rather than on the personality of the member, because uh, otherwise, uh, it's just going to be very difficult in this current climate where you have these right wingers that are, are are getting a little bit more engaged on foreign policy. And presumably, like the White House also saw how it unfolded and, and got the message. You know, the White House, I think, is is very aware that this support for the Ukraine for the Ukraine war and especially the huge amounts of funding for it, you know, support for that war is it, it, it's it's solid in a sense, but it's also um, you know, there's definitely a, a potential for it to weaken depending on how things are approached and depending how developments happen. So I think the White House is very aware that, you know, and I, and I wouldn't be surprised if they were engaged on this and, you know, pretty engaged with Congress on this, because it was certainly a worry. If, if you read some of the reporting from the Axios piece, uh, we, you had senators already preparing what they were going to do if it passed the House. Um, and so this was certainly a major topic. And I think this this amazing Marjorie Taylor Greene play spared them some of that. But I, they know that there is an increasingly growing group of principled members that are pretty consistently standing up for, you know, reasonable human rights focus and restraint focused foreign policy. And Eric, because this, like you said, the war is still fairly strongly supported among Democrat, Democrats, and that support, I suspect, extends to a lot of people listening to this uh, podcast now who would say, look, this is a just war. Uh, Ukraine was criminally invaded by a maniac. And if they believe that they need cluster munitions to fight back, then we should just, just do whatever it is that they are asking uh, to support their effort uh, because they're the ones whose, whose lives and 
and, and sovereignty are on the line. What, what, what do you tell uh, people when you hear that argument? Yeah, well, that argument is very complex. Um, you know, there's a number of responses there. Um, you know, I think, first of all, again, it comes back to you want to support Ukraine. And I think everyone, especially now that they are in this war, um, you know, I don't think reasonable people should say we should cut off Ukraine uh, because they have already been uh, encouraged to, to continue a path and support it in a particular path. Cutting them off now would lead Russia to just uh, march forward and, and be an absolute nightmare. And so that's why you saw most Democrats, all Democrats, 100% of Democrats voting against Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates' amendments to cut support entirely. Those were other amendments that were allowed to see a vote because they were so unstrategic and so uh, unhelpful to promoting a more nuanced point of view. But on the cluster bombs, I think it comes back to a few things. I think, first of all, the concern is, and, and it's already happening, that it, it can split the alliance. Uh, most NATO countries do not support these weapons. There's been a number of countries that are outspoken about it. You know, and I think that the big argument they're relying on is, well, it's Ukrainian territory. And these are, you know, Ukraine should make the decision about whether or not to litter its uh, country with at least hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of unexploded bomblets. But what that's missing is that Ukraine is going to be firing these across the front line. And so they're actually firing them into areas that it's not, you know, a lot of experts have doubts about, even including General Milley, have doubts about whether they're going to be able to retake that. So it's, it's a little bit of a disingenuous argument that, you know, it's their own people because reality is they may be littering the Russian held side of that contact line. You know, I think the real concern, too, is it, it plays into Russian propaganda when you have the use of when the U.S. is supporting Ukraine in using these indiscriminate weapons that are essentially like, it's like a carpet bombing in a single bomb. And then you have the, the, the long-lasting impacts as well. So, you know, I think that's the concern. I mean, if Ukraine would also like uh, any number of weapons, um, they would love, obviously, full provision of, of jets. And, you know, they would even accept, if you could sneak it in there, they would accept the nuclear weapon if you could get it to them. Um, and so I, I think that's not really the right question to ask. I think, again, it comes down to, you know, the responsibility as as the United States for our actions. And, and, you know, I think once you transfer those bombs, it's not just Ukraine's decision. You know, we also enabled that decision and it's something that then we're responsible for helping to remedy in the future. And, and we will be. So before we let you go, Eric, I also just wanted to ask about, <laughs> I just want to take a moment to think about the fallen amendments of this week. There were a, you know, you mentioned a whole host of amendments that um, The Intercept was closely watching. We we did a piece earlier this week that people should take a look at. Eric, I know that you are watching one in particular very closely, the Jamal Bowman's amendment about getting U.S. presence out of Syria. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I would say this was a, another side of the, of the kind of left-right collaboration that you know, needs to be explored a bit and was a little bit of a disappointment for many of us. But, you know, this amendment was, uh, had gotten votes for the past two years. It would simply give the president a year to either get authorization from Congress or else the mission would have to end. So it doesn't require the mission in Syria to end, but it, it does require that president come to Congress as required by the War Powers Resolution, the Constitution, and get authorization. And it's gotten votes the past two years, and it was growing in support on both sides of the aisle. We had 60% of Democrats vote for it last year and uh, 25 Republicans. And after Gates did a similar, bolder, like more uh, 
Syria war powers resolution earlier in the year with a six-month timeline, we had a chance to pass it. And of course, unfortunately, Republican leadership again blocked that. And we were really disappointed that some of the folks who had in the past voted for it and, and have supported that on the right in rules committee didn't vote for it. And so that was really, really troubling. That is the history of this left-right uh, collaboration is is saying that the Congress should decide on these questions of war, uh, as the Constitution indicates. And so to see that amendment be struck down was really disappointing. Even though Republican leadership was incredibly, almost almost unprecedentedly uh, restrictive in what they allowed to get a vote this year, um, it was there's a lot of reason to be hopeful, and and I think. Um, it's really exciting for many of us to continue to, to see the squad members taking a lot of leadership and also seeing new members that are sort of squad adjacent, you know, getting involved in foreign policy on this bill. Uh, Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez, for example, is, is often criticized by the left, but she's been really pretty strong on a range of Latin America policy issues over many years. It's often overlooked by some of the Twitter commentators. That, for example, she stood up against the coup in, in Bolivia, introduced an amendment, and she's doing this. She did the same this year with an important amendment that would limit U.S. military aid to Peru. Uh, got a lot of attention in Peru. Um, so even though it was rejected, it was really encouraging to the protest movement in Peru that's fighting essentially uh, kind of a, a regime in, uh, of, of elites in, in the capital city, Lima. So that's just one example, but there's many other great amendments that were done. For example, uh, Robert Garcia, Becca Balint uh, led an amendment to cut security aid to Uganda over its horrible anti-LGBTQ law. That's got a lot of attention in the media, but no one mentions, as The Intercept covered it though, uh, but no one mentions the huge amount of support for uh, that the US provides in military aid. So that was really exciting to see that and, and see members getting, like Robert Garcia, Becca Balint, two freshman members getting involved right off the bat. And you saw a whole range of other amendments too uh, from, from progressive members. Uh, yeah, uh, Greg Kassar, you know, this is, I'll mention this one because it's relevant to a recent show that we had. He's the member from Austin. I can't remember if we've had, I think we've had him on here uh, before, but he's a freshman kind of squad adjacent member from Texas who introduced a measure uh, requiring basically the State Department to look into democratic backsliding in Pakistan. And it's very unusual, you know, in Congress uh, to have any pushback against kind of the military establishment. In, in Pakistan. Uh, and basically that's organized around what's going on with, uh, you know, the repression of, of Imran Khan and his, his political party. Yeah. And what we noted about that too, is this is an example of, this is a rare example of democracy in action in the sense that there are a lot of Pakistani Americans in Texas. And so that's a natural focus for uh, Congressman Kassar uh, to have. There's another amendment that Kassar did as well that's really interesting, focused on the way that Congress continues to fund all these weapon systems that the Pentagon isn't even asking for. And at the same time, service member families are really struggling with basic needs such as childcare. So he proposed an amendment with Joaquin Castro to take the money from these weapon systems that the Pentagon doesn't want and put it towards uh, supporting service member childcare, which is really a, uh, an urgent need for many of these families. And of course, Republican leadership blocked it, but we think that's another really important way to start to go at some of these this military industrial complex and, and get a better balance there between supporting the actual people that are involved in the Pentagon, many of whom are, are really mistreated, versus the, these, these lobbyists that are getting all these contracts for, for you know, hundreds of billions in contracts for these weapons manufacturers. There were a lot of interesting transparency amendments that didn't make it through. Also, uh, Ayanna Presley had a really good one, you know, or ordering uh, the military to you know look closer at the assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moise and what you know what role or what knowledge the U.S. might have had about that. AOC had a 
couple of fascinating ones. One about looking into the U.S., you know, declassifying information about the U.S. role in the coup that brought Pinochet to power in Chile. Uh, one about the Brazilian coup in uh, 1964. What was the U.S. role in that? Uh, one about the kind of death squads and repression in Colombia from 1980 on, well into the 2000s, declassify information around that. Uh, so, you know, some some interesting and fun things to push around, but still the rock just too heavy to push up the hill. I think the real significance of all this is we are seeing this new generation of members and staffers. Um, it is a, a generation that came up with the Bernie movement. It's the most diverse generation of staffers by far. And uh, there's have been a lot of positive impacts. You're seeing members uh, these younger members who they don't necessarily have a political incentive. There's not a huge, uh, they're, they're not going to get huge donations for standing up for some of this, some of these issues, but you're seeing them start to pick issues. And so it's great. You see Ayanna Presley working on Haiti and, and you see, you know, we know, you know, Cori Bush introduced an amendment on security aid to Cameroon and, and you have AOC handling a number of countries in Latin America and, and other members. And so you are seeing this new generation of staffers. And while it didn't necessarily pay dividends directly this time, it, it will be harder with the, all of this kind of momentum and, and all of this history for if the Democrats manage to, to take power again, uh, it's a lot harder for the Democrats to block these things because ostensibly they support human rights and um, these types of things abroad. And so so I do think it's it's sort of a long game, but it's very encouraging. People should feel encouraged that there is a generation uh, in Congress that, that's coming up that, that cares about these issues and is willing to fight and is basically completely independent from the mainstream foreign policy thinking. And they are willing to act even when the kind of the traditional forces in Washington would really uh, and, and often do put a lot of pressure on them not to. And one piece of breaking news while we were recording this, uh, the House... Uh, did pass the final measure uh, 219 to 210, I believe was the final. Uh, we didn't actually get into why it became so controversial on the floor in the in the final moments. Uh, we can talk about that in the future, but essentially Republicans brought their culture war and jammed it into the NDAA. They put some anti-trans stuff in there. They barred uh, service members from, uh, barred the Pentagon from uh, allowing service members or paying for service members to travel uh, to get abortions if, the, if they happen to have been kind of located in a state that has banned abortion. Uh, and, and they did some uh, stuff about D DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, Republicans, you know, uh, threw in there. And so they basically got close to zero or maybe zero uh, support from, from Democrats. From there, it's going to have to go uh, and be married up with the Senate version. Senate Democrats are not going to go for these uh, culture war issues being thrown into the NDAA, uh, which is going to create a, a logjam. I guess last question for you, Eric, this is unprecedented territory for the NDAA, which is always described as must-pass legislation and always moves through on, with these bipartisan votes. My guess is that they strip this culture stuff out and you end up passing it back through the House with a bipartisan vote and uh, the culture warriors you know, throw a temper tantrum. Am I wrong? Are they going to shut down the military over this? Where, where, how do you think this ends? No, I think that's exactly right. And this is often what happens with our, our key foreign policy issues too, is the bill goes to conference. Uh, they, they, they try to reconcile the, the House bill and the Senate bill. And the White House basically does behind the scenes negotiations to make sure they have the votes and they find the right provisions to make sure they have the votes. And when you put that up, uh, for a vote, you know, even these, I think many of these far right members are not going to want to vote down the Pentagon budget and, 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 and cut support to our troops for these issues. So, you know, the, the White House will have the leverage when it goes, when they send the final bill back for approval after conference. 
All right. Well, Eric, thank you very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Noska, thanks so much. Great to be here. Thanks. Thank you. That was Noska Renner and Eric Sperling, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of The Intercept. Our producer is Jose Olivares. Our supervising producer is Laura Flynn. The show is mixed by William Stanton. This episode was transcribed by Leonardo Fireman. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is The Intercept's editor-in-chief, and I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week, and please go and leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. Go ahead and rate any episode that you want, even if you rated one already. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com or at ryan.grim at theintercept.com. Put deconstructed in the subject line, otherwise I might miss your message. Thanks so much, and I'll see you soon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.